Welcome, listeners, once again to the Punk Theology Podcast. Today, titling this episode, Lil... It's like Lil Wayne, you know? Lil Nas X. Lil Sister Big Brother is the uh, title of this episode. You're going to find out why very soon. This, this is the Punk Theology Podcast. And you're listening to Season 4. Big thanks to Ulysses Lima for this here bumper. First podcast of 2021. Welcome. Today, Kristen, co-producer, joins us. Could we be adding a new number? Welcome. We have a guest on uh, on the podcast. There she is. She's. I'm blushing. I'm actually blushing. I feel like it's like the red carpet rollout. Hello, everybody. (laughs) Welcome to the show. Most people are going to hear this, not see it. Right. Uh, That's true. Chuck. Chuck's here. There we go. Letting Chuck into the room and boom. And then there was five. There's Chuck. We've never done this with fires. No. Yeah, this is a... See how it goes. Hey, Chuck, I'm Kristen. Hey, Kristen. I'm Chuck. Hey, Chuck. (laughs) Nice to to formally meet you. Yeah, nice to finally meet you. From uh, after listening to hours and hours of you guys podcasting, I've come to the conclusion that you and I have the most similar issues. So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll see how that one. And you guys, you guys get to do mushroom. Your life sucks, just like mine. Uh... Wait, you actually (laughs) listen to the podcast? I'm a co-producer. He's a co-producer. <laughs> for God's sake. I pay five bucks a month for this shit. <laughs> well spoken. <laughs> hey, oh. it's five bucks well spent. I was telling, so Derek, what I was telling them before you came in is that this is the best way that I've ever spent time getting to know you. And that's why oh, I listen to it. It's because I get to pleasure. know my older brother, who I respect and love a lot. He's a dick. I know. Oh, yes. oh! I have stories of Derek being a dick, <laughs> but we're not going to get into that. That's a whole other thing. Poor I'm really good at it, Joe Chuck. Yes, you are. I'm not just a, I'm not just a run-of-the-mill dick. No, I'm primo. Well like, practiced. Yeah. No, I didn't know that Derek was nice until I was probably about 26. Wow. Nice. I didn't know. <laughs> Isn't that every older brother? Like you watch sitcoms yep. and the no, older brother no, is a dick. No, he I, was only specifically child, so I... terrible. He was he was he was <laughs> terrible child, on so purpose. Experience. I was a stepbrother or whatever, but you know, it just I hear stories and it's always the older brother's job. It's like a rite of passage for the younger kids. Uh, that's fair. Like they bring the older brothers in a room at some point and go, You have to be a dick because <laughs> Your siblings are going to be pussies if you don't. So. You kind of did take that on, didn't you, Derek? Like, as, oh, yeah, yeah. that was like your role. You saw Enough. it as, all right, I need to talk okay. about my siblings, and you worked pretty hard at it. So, I shouldn't talk about this because I'm going to offend somebody, but yes. <laughs> Wait, what do you mean you can offend somebody? <laughs> somebody in our family. Oh, oh, oh. you and me in the same podcast. It's inevitable. Me? I was already playing no. this through in my head earlier, deciding what it was that I couldn't couldn't talk about. And I was like, you know what? Balls to the walls. I'm just gonna talk about it. Like, who's gonna listen? Dad, mom, no, <laughs> maybe Josh. 
Maybe, bro. We're not going to listen to this. We'll see. Eh, it'll bring what us are we talking about? Are we talking about just fan, Han family stories? Because we have a lot of those. <laughs> I'm curious about, I'm really curious about the missionary kid stuff. Like, uh, you know, I mean, I've heard stories from some of my friends who are missionary kids and you guys no. went to Africa. Last week, Derek was talking about, I had a tooth pulled, you know, I went to the dentist. Uh-huh. I haven't been to the dentist since like the fucking Clinton administration. Oh, you know, our I, dad's a dentist, right? <laughs> I just hate the <laughs> dentist. That hurts but this to was hear. Sort of a, speaking of mental health, you know, we talk about that in the show. It was sort of a, a, a self-care for me because normally I would have just ignored it, but I had an abscess for like four months. That I that's and Derek's like Chuck and Steve, you should go to the We had an intervention. That's really not good for you. you I told him about how people No, it's terrible for your heart. I know it's really bad for your brain, too. It's like Yeah, that's what I heard. It's really bad. What I heard the bacteria (laughs) will end up in your brain. It's a terrible idea. Really? Yeah. And you'll definitely have an a heart attack earlier than the and I, you know, it's you funny want. how your mind goes through all the shit. Like, oh my God, they're going to see the rest of my teeth and want all my fucking teeth pulled, right? Like, these are all the stories that's playing in my head. It's going to hurt for days. I'm probably going to miss days of work, you know, oh, just all the negative shit. And they're like, at first, the dentist was like, oh, I, it doesn't look that bad. It's a baby tooth, and the other teeth kind of grew around it. And he said, oh, yeah, he called it a pimple. He was like this Asian guy. Oh, he's got a pimple. Yeah, in the back, he's got a pimple, so it needs to come out. Like, what's a fucking pimple? What the hell are you talking about? Oh, it's the abscess. Like, you have an infection. So did he pop it? He goes, how long has it been there? I guess it's July. (laughs) That's a really gross story, Russ. (laughs) Right. And then, so I'm telling Derek about this. Really gross. I used to pull people's teeth when I was like 12 years old. (laughs) He did. Not 12. 16. You were 16. Okay, 16. Yeah. Just old enough to look competent enough in a white coat. Did like, you pull that's, any teeth, Kristen? That's that's literally what they did. did. I, no, I I was a dental hygienist. <laughs> he was a girl. Oh, you can't. Girls. Girls can't. Shut up. It wouldn't let me pull teeth because I was a girl. It's wow. true. Yep, I'm I'm not salty about it at all. It's fine. <laughs> But I was a hygienist because that was good enough for me. So dad, dad let me suck spit. And I got to see a lot of really gross things. (laughs) I got to hold the little sucker thing and go. Yeah, to hold the little thing and suck. It's harder than it looks. It's really hard not to suck up like the side of someone's cheek or tongue or something like that. Yeah. I got good at it. (laughs) I was good enough at it. But no, they wouldn't actually let me like, they wouldn't give me the pliers, which was bullshit. But it's It it was pretty stupid. So you had a white coat and that gave you authority, right? Yeah. And it's amazing how that worked. Like yeah. oh yeah, it was instantaneous. White, that's what white man in a white uh-huh. coat, like, yep. Just yep. just sit there and let him do whatever. Because when we were because I don't remember how old you were, I can't remember how old I was when we went to Honduras, I think, for the first time. And and then I got to I got to do the optometry clinic. And so I put on a white coat and they just called me Doctora. They were like, hey, Doctor. And I was like, yeah, you know, I was probably 18, 19 years old. So that well, was the first time that I actually had any kind of leverage within the you're probably seven because I think I was 20. Probably. Or 21. That's, wow, that's like a time. worldwide thing. Like people see the white coat and go, oh, doctor, like that's somebody who's <laughs> well, like Dirk was saying, not just a white coat, like a white person in a white coat. Oh it's yeah. it does go hand in hand. It's 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 very it's weird. It's but it's real. It's cool, Kristen, you were talking about 
before we we started recording about how you got kind of a it was a different cultural than than spe- speaking of white people you guys grew up in idaho <laughs> north idaho not just idaho north idaho, north idaho. it's a very specific kind of white it's basically or, two states yeah there's is. southern yeah. idaho is mormons idaho and northern idaho is militia idaho <laughs> And, and they're completely different. They have totally different values. I bet they both True. voted for Trump, though. They both got Trump signs in the front yard. Uh, yeah. Uh, one the, the, the North side's a little more enthusiastic about their Trump than the South. <laughs> well, I still live in North Idaho, so don't tell anybody. <laughs> I'm, I'm wearing a trucker hat, so I don't know. Uh, no, it's weird because I'm probably one of the me- the most liberal people that I know in North Idaho. There's not many. Yeah. There's... Derek's growing increasingly. Yeah. I'm in his... than I used to be. Well, I imagine you're probably one of the more conservative people that you know in your community. Yeah. But I, I don't know if that's true. Kind of middle of the road. Mm-hmm. I could see that. But if I lived in Seattle, then it would be different. Then I'd definitely be conservative. Yes. Yeah. I was a lot less liberal until Trump happened. <laughs> right. So shook people, a lot yeah. of people. You know? I don't feel like I moved as much as the party moved around to me, if that makes sense. <laughs> it does make sense. <laughs> I used to it be does. a card carrying Republican at one point. And it was when I was self employed, you know, and Republicans are for the self employed people until, you know, you realize that no. <laughs> you had a literal card? Yeah, I had a, a card, card that said that you were a registered a Republican. That is special. They mailed me a card, and I'm like, oh fuck! Like I'm like, like being part of the NRA. It's like, all right. <laughs> they yes. mailed me that too. My dad was a long time NRA member. <laughs> I still get shit in the mail from NRA. My dad's like, he's Charles Lyman Shaw, and I'm Charles Russell Shaw, and so it comes in the mail, Charles Shaw <laughs> from the NRA. And there's a few times, you know, when all these mass shootings and stuff, like you know what. I, I was tempted. I, I think I did one time. I just wrote return to sender. I was going to, you know, cancel it, but it's just too much work. Yeah. Don't piss off the NRA. I'm not that political, you know, or outraged as a Seattle guy. Quasi liberal. I'm too liberal for my conservative friends and I'm too conservative for some of my liberal that i relate to that's kind of where that i relate to yes (laughs) it's a real problem it is yeah it is being moderate is not uh, currently very appealing it's uh other than the fact that you're right kind of taboo (laughs) but having those conversations i think is really interesting because i want i want to ride the line and not and not have people leave the room you know (laughs) Like how, yeah, do you, it's tricky. how do you have those conversations in it, it's not like you have to walk on pins and needles or you got to get skilled at conversation and relationship in order to because having these conversations at work i'm like no you know we had a customer walk up with a shirt that said defund the media you know and, he, and then he just starts going on this weird rant and the service manager my boss and i just kind of look at each other and go well, you know, we can fit you in at three. <laughs> Change the subject. Like he's trying to, you know, get us into his his fucking. No, well, I mean that's his. I mean, you got you guys all know that I'm a therapist, and that's the the bottom line is what I've just been saying this whole goddamn year is that everybody wants to be heard and nobody's feeling heard. And so, I mean, I mean, 
like what I hear, at least when you tell me that story is that just somebody's so desperate for a connection that yeah. they're, they're looking and they're searching and they're hoping and they're hoping and it's, they're not finding it. And they're, they're hoping that maybe it's going to be the guys that they bring, you know, they bring their car into the mechanic and then yeah. maybe they're going to have that, that, that moment where they actually connect with somebody and they feel heard for a moment and that they feel like they, they matter and that their opinions mean something and that their emotions mean something, but they don't. <laughs> it's, it's funny Nobody actually cares. Like, go get some friends. Like we're not your friends. We like fix your car. No. I turn a wrench. I tell people that. Like people come in and ask me. Like I know what's going on, and I just point people to the service manager. Like I don't because they walk, the way our shop is set up. Like people just walk in, and then they ask me questions. Like I'm supposed to know what to do with their fucking car, <laughs> you know? And I'm trying not to be rude, but I'm like. Um, I just turn a wrench, man. Like they over there walk the guy in the white shirt. Like that's who you want to talk to. Well, yeah, you don't want to be. The I do hear that, Kristen. Like there's some people, and you can kind of see it in their eyes. Like you know, will you hear my pain? <laughs> well, it's so funny because or be my there are these people that that have these really extreme opinions, and they're incredibly lonely, and they don't put the two together. Like maybe I'm super lonely because I'm an aggressive asshole who constantly brings this up in casual conversation and dominates the, like they don't like maybe those two are correlated and they cannot figure that out in their head that um them that maybe they shouldn't be just randomly attacking people and insisting that their worldviews are bullshit and I'm the right one in the room and then and then they just go back to being lonely and like they really don't understand why they're so lonely like because well, you're sufferable asshole but they're sure it's everybody else they really uh -huh. are and it's i mean that's that's actually kind of a segue into what i've been deeply contemplating the last i mean it's really been the last month but probably the last couple of days especially i've just been meditating super heavily on the idea of what it actually means to to be humble mm. and it is such a physically painful experience to be humble like it actually feels like having your face ground down into the dirt and to really acknowledge that you might not be right about everything sometimes hurts and I because I just know that that's how I've been feeling because I've I've heard probably so I mean just just in my therapeutic practice I have consistently about 35 clients that I see fairly regularly wow. and I mean, it's, it's a full spectrum from conservative to liberal and I mean, from atheist to deeply religious and, you know, transgender to very straight. And it's like everything you could really think of. And sometimes I just get so overwhelmed with perspectives that I'm not even sure where it is that I stand. But then all of a sudden I start formulating my opinions and I've noticed, especially in the last month that I've been pretty self-righteous about my own perspective because it's really easy for me to just be like yeah you know so I'm a therapist so because of that like I hear everything and I know everything and uh, I feel everything which is simultaneously true and not it's been a good year to work through righteousness. <sighs> it's been awful like, but yes yeah. you're right there's been lots of opportunities uh I've been playing a lot with so I started reading um I think I've read this up, brought this up before. Um, Anton LaVey's Satanic Bible. Um, and he, I don't know like, if I'm familiar with it. The, satan, it, the Satanic yeah. Bible. 
I mean, Jason, Jason and I have been talking about the seven principles of Satanism lately, but I don't, I haven't actually read the Satan. So, and he has a lot of it. Honestly, the, it's mostly the first third of the book that's any good. Um, he's a really interesting guy, really interesting perspectives. Uh, but he has the, this one essay that's really stuck with me for most of this year. Uh, and he talks about indulgence over compulsion. Have we talked about this? I think we talked about it briefly. Uh, but it's a really beautiful idea. It's, you know, basically Satanism from like Anton LaVey's version comes down to deeply humanistic. Mm -hmm. uh, like he's like, Satan's not real. Everybody. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, that's like right. this is not like, there's no such thing as Satan. There's no such thing. As no, God. it's a one it's, giant trolling religion. It's hilarious, but yeah, exactly. it's, it's, a, it's, it's an atheist like poking the fucking bear. Yeah. It's what yeah. it is. Yeah. It's yeah. really funny. <laughs> Aggressive, dramatic, nerdy, like really nerdy atheism. Uh, um, but but that idea of indulgence over compulsion has been really interesting to me because I do notice so many. Uh, and basically, like it's an argument of pressure, of like like you as a human want to do certain things, and if you just keep bottling it up longer and longer and longer, it's going to come out in compulsive behavior that you don't have any control over. Exactly. So you might as well choose indulgence from time to time, or you just lean into something and let yourself be a human for a little while to take that pressure back down. And then when you've regained some control and you don't feel quite as, uh, quite as obligated by it, you can just go on with your life. And it, so it's basically an idea of personal freedom of like, look, just indulge that, sh that shit that you've got. Don't make a big deal out of it. Just have a go, have a good time. And then you won't suffer from compulsive behavior um, long-term for the rest of your life, trying to, to keep the, the cork on this thing. Uh, and so that comes back to um, the idea of self-righteousness because mm -hmm. I have been dealing with a lot of self-righteousness mm -hmm. this year. And I've just been letting myself go with it a little bit with the full realization, like you sound like a self-righteous prick. <laughs> like, yeah, I know, <laughs> like fucking call me out for it. That's fine. <laughs> like, like, but I just need to work through this a little bit and I need to, to hold that perspective of, yes, I'm right. And everybody else around me is a fucking idiot so that I can just work through it a little bit and then come back to the table later with, with the heat turned down. Yeah. It's actually been really effective. So no, what's that makes the difference sense. between that and, and, and Kristen's clients? Uh, are you asking Kristen? Well, the group. Now, what's the difference between that? I think I'm right. Let me just deal with this and those that Kristen sees regularly as far as there is their, their stuff. So whatever it might be, that's, that's where they are. And they're going to just hold on to that mm -hmm. and let it, let it, um, or expel itself. Yeah, it sounds like people see Christian, someone like yourself or a Christian counselor or, you know, a priest or, or you know, I mean, people go to someone like yourself. I, my wife and I were watching The Mandalorian and, and I love this. There was this one scene where the, this one of the guys from the Empire leans in and he says, you know, people think they want freedom. He says they don't want freedom. They want order. That's what they want. And that's why they come to see, you know they submit to the, you know, which, which is the villain kind of in, in the story of Star Wars. Is that the chicken but, man from Breaking Bad? Yeah. 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 But, but that's what people, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a good moment. One. Yeah. That's, that's another one. We want, I like we want, we yeah, want order. We, we, 
we seek that. So that's where kind of the self-righteousness comes in maybe is where I am a, I wield order. I mean, I did a podcast on addiction for years and people, you know, I didn't even finish high school and I've got like someone who's a judge asking me about why they're addicted to sadomasochism, you know, things like just it, because they're, they're seeking order, not necessarily from a professional, obviously, but there's something to that. It's really interesting. Is well, that I, kind of what you're saying, well, Steve? Well, I mean, writing, writing it back to what Steve was saying, I mean, Steve was saying was that, I mean, we're all right. And I mean, as much as, and also what Derek was saying, like leaning into the self-righteousness and kind of letting some of that just be true for a little while, especially if you're not used to it. So, I mean, the, the individuals that I work with, they're not used to being heard. They're not used to having a voice. And that's something that I can relate to because I mean, as much as, as I feel very confident in who I am as a therapist and what I do, I'm also incredibly fucked up psychologically, like mentally, emotionally, physically, I have a lot of personal issues. And so, I mean, part of the reason why I think I'm such a good therapist is because I identify so directly with what it is that I see sitting opposite from me whenever, whenever I spend time with somebody else. Mm -hmm. And, and so, we're all, I mean, every single perspective of anybody that I've listened to is grounded in some kind of truth. And it also veers off into something really skewed. Like it just gets really weird really quickly. And because people are just so sure that they're right, but they haven't had an, had an opportunity to really be able to check that. And because they, they haven't spoken it out loud, because every time they start talking, they either get shut down or criticized or or I mean, told that they're just idiots. And so then they shut up and then they start, they start creating really weird worldviews in their head. And I do the same thing because I don't speak out very often about what my own personal opinion is because I'm so used to being shut down for, I mean, for a number of different reasons. Yeah. But so, I mean, as much as I'm listening to all my clientele and I'm learning from them, I'm also at this weird place in my life where I'm trying to put together the different pieces of what I'm hearing and learning and understanding, but still trying to apply it in a very human personal way. And I'm doing it. I like, sometimes I just feel like a little kid. Like I feel like I'm just a toddler because I'm exploring while I'm also trying to lead all these other people. And it's this weird tug and pull between, I know what I'm doing, but I also don't know anything. Right. And so how do you put your therapist hat away when you, when you're, when you're on your way home and you get back home? I cry a Baywatch. lot. Baywatch. Cry a lot. <laughs> well, yes, Baywatch. Baywatch for uh, for a while until it got really, really, really painfully stupid. Like it was beautifully stupid and then until it got painfully stupid and then it, it broke my heart. I was like, David, David Hasselhoff, no. And then I started watching Baywatch nights and that was hilarious again until it wasn't. So, you know. <laughs> anyway, Is it a hat like on uh, Mindhunter on Netflix? And oh, it, it, I haven't been able to actually it? watch it. I haven't been, I'd, I'd watched like 20 minutes of the first episode and turned it off because it was too real. Um, yeah, uh, that's what I was curious about mm -hmm. because those guys, it bleeds over into their life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One that's what I was interested uh, in too is like you, the hats, like, is it a hat? Like, can you take the hat off at the end of the night? Like, do you? I see it less as hats and more as pieces it's like it is me when I'm in my therapeutic mindset that is very much who I am and it's right. it's completely authentic but it's not integrating all of my pieces 
Um, I was actually listening to your your last podcast, the most the one that you guys recently just posted. I was listening to it today. I uh, I took a hit of THC and then I just walked around the the neighborhood and listened to your podcast. And I was I was specifically thinking about about Chuck and just what he was talking about about the idea of because you guys were talking about integration and Chuck was like fuck that because that means you're broken and yep. I was like yes <laughs> but no. So I was like arguing with you in my head, Chuck. So we already have a relationship, even though you don't know who I am. So whatever. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but, but like, so when I think of integration, I think of reintegration, which is, it's not that we're broken. It's that every single one of us is comprised of millions of different pieces. And, and just like you can look at a, a big pile of sand and you can turn it into a sand castle. I mean, that is, it's, there's, there's so many different pixels to, to that sandcastle. And so you can break it down and you can disassemble it. Because I don't believe in being broken, but I do right. believe in being disassembled. And especially the traumatized mind, what it does is that when it's not feeling safe, what it does is it breaks itself down into a million different pieces. And then it picks up the ones that it feels safest in and it puts those together and then it rejects the rest. So the idea of integration or reintegration is to go back one piece at a time and invite it back home to see if you can restructure things in any way. Wow. And, and I think what's, I mean, what's just so incredible about the human brain is that it's able to function on bare minimum pieces. Like it doesn't really need a whole lot in order to be able to function relatively well, but it can function a hell of a lot better if you continue to integrate new and different pieces so that the entire system functions the way that it was originally intended to. But the bummer about that is that once you're completely reintegrated, you've never been more vulnerable ever. Yeah, because once so you are true. one whole piece, you don't have a sacrificial lamb that you can take and put out there and say, okay, this is the designated part that's specifically meant to take physical or emotional or psychological pain. Because mm. I know I have those pieces and a lot of people do. And so they have designated parts that they're like, okay, this is the, this is the individual that has to suffer for this thing specifically. But if you bring that thing home and you reintegrate it back into the collective, that means you have to feel it. Like you have to feel it in your nervous system and it hurts so bad. Yeah. But oh my gosh. Chuck, who's so up for you? It's so true. Uh, and it's, it's something that I've experienced like doing. Let me ask Chuck. Yeah, Chuck. Chuck. Sorry. Chuck. Which one yeah. of us? What is that for you? Which self is, is your whipping boy? Um, he's like five or six. He doesn't have a name or anything. Um, it's the, I think it's the part that I left when I first remember leaving my body. Um, and it's, it sucks because he likes being that part of me. Like he enjoys the, coming forward and feeling all the pain just because it feels like something. comfortable for him. Like it's, that's, that's his, his role. Yeah. yeah. That's his role. It's the and one thing he's good at and he's really good at it. Yes. Nobody else wants to do it. And he's special because mm -hmm. nobody else wants to do it at all. Yeah. Is that a memory? Is that a memory check? Of what? That, that, that guy? Really? No, no, no. He's definitely like part of me. Was there a memory that triggered it? 
birthed it. Or a feeling? No, but an event birthed it, I think. Well, well, the memory is the when my dad beat the shit out of me with a two by four. Right. When I was mm-hmm. that age, five or six, um, mm-hmm. we were spraying aerosol, uh, like wood cleaner. My brother and I were upstairs just goofing off and the shit was everywhere. So I get the frustration of my parents, but nobody explained that right. like a it could, you know, when you get it in your eyes and you can blind yourself. Um, instead it was just get beat for making the mess and my dad beat my brother first and when he hit me the first time it was kind of with the same force that he hit my brother which my brother was a little bit more than two years younger than I am and I kind of like laughed at him like is that all you got and then he just beat the shit out of me I mean and I was gone Um, I watched the memory is watching the entire thing from the ceiling of my bedroom. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like there's no memory of being beat. That I understand. Is, is watching it. Yep. The shift in perspective. Yeah. So, I mean, before, especially we continue, because that's, I mean, that's such a serious memory shock. It really is. But before we continue, I just need to let you guys know that the way that I therapeutically approach trauma, because I specialize specifically in really extreme psychological trauma, I find it funny. Yeah. That's my whole thing. So like you started talking about it and it immediately struck a, a humorous chord in me because it's so ridiculous. Like when you're talking about your dad, like with a two by four and you know, this aerosol can, it's like, well, motherfucker. All right. We're just going to go for it. Aren't we? Like, we're just going to yeah. go straight to the worst thing that you can imagine. And it really is that bad. And I mean, to me, I, I have the hardest time crying about something if I haven't laughed about it first. I have to laugh about it first. If it's not funny, then I'm not going to go there. So yeah. I just want to, I, I mean, especially like as you're talking about this, if I start laughing, I am not meaning to. Oh, no, you can laugh. You can laugh okay. at all you want because okay. I see the ridiculousness in it. As, as it well. is. Because it's yeah. so extreme. Oh, it's, it's like, yeah. oh, all right. <laughs> it's terrible. And it is. And even like, even whenever I talk about some of this stuff, I have to, there are parts that I have to remove. Oh, I'm sure myself. Like, it's just, they have to be put away, whether it's sometimes it's forcefully, they have to, like, I have to mm-hmm. put them away. Other times they're, it's willing. Um, but I have to put certain parts away to really talk about anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And that's just survival and that's just coping and it's also healing because like as you're talking about this like you said it's you see it from the third person point of view that you see it almost like from that that camera angle of being up Mm -hmm. in the the corner of the room and and again like that right there is an indicator of the brain disassembling itself it goes nope this right here in this moment is too physically and emotionally painful i can't integrate it so because of that i'm just going to fall apart and then I'm going to designate certain things to certain pieces. And it works really, really well until the reintegration part, because it's when you know that you can flip from that third person point of view to the first person point of view that you've actually start to really, really heal. But that's the bitch of it. Because who wants to do that? Who wants to feel that from a first person perspective? Nobody. It's yep. awful. Yeah. The, yep. It is. 
The moment I broke from my body was when I was six years old. So it was around, okay. it sounds like the same time that it yeah. was for you. And I, I, I identify as having full-blown DID, dissociative identity disorder. Yeah. I am, I got the multiple personalities and I have become relatively well acquainted with them and they're all me. And that's something that I've been, um, I don't know if I would say struggling with it, but I guess struggling with it is just the understanding that they, all of these parts are still me. Yes. Uh, I yeah. have a part that I, I call him Dilbert. And I think, and I've told, I've talked to you, Derek, a lot about this, that I think he is really the gatekeeper of everything. Um, I think he is very good at masking who he really is. And he pretends to be a lot of things. Um, he is also like the engineer side of me so he well he's gotten me this far in my life um, but I think he just is the gatekeeper and has all of the keys to unlock everything that needs to be unlocked and put back together with me that's pretty far the fact that you've been able to actually make it that far that you understand that there is a gatekeeper or somebody who holds the key and then from there, it's a matter of trying to be able to rebuild a relationship with that person because it's, yeah. that's not easy because I'm sure it's a multidimensional thing because some yeah. parts of you can probably connect, but then other parts are not comfortable with it at all and probably just straight up reject it. Yeah. I think it's, your, your uh, Dilbert and Wednesday are very similar in terms of like most of the interaction that happens in my head is with Wednesday. And there's other players, but most of it tends to come through Wednesday and the more I look at Wednesday the more I realize how easy it is for her to break into different pieces like she yeah. can just kind of uh branch out really quickly and uh like she's really much more complicated than pretty much any other entity uh and it feels to me sometimes like Dilbert's the same way like most of your interaction with your other selves is with Dilbert in some fashion or at least he's there overseeing yeah. things and then and that he's just really multifaceted even though he doesn't like to always present himself that way. Correct. So does Dilbert feel welcome with you, Chuck? Mm, yes and no. There are there are times where he does, and there are other times where I think he's an asshole and I'm he's not welcome. <laughs> um, and that's been a struggle because it's learning that that he might be the gatekeeper of a lot of stuff. It's like, hey, I kind of, not that I have to be friends with him or anything, but it's also, I need to learn who he is and why he does what he does. Would is you he say a, he's humble? Would humble come to mind when describing Dilbert or Wednesday, Derek? That's no. Wednesday's not humble. <laughs> no. It's, just, it's kind of that part of your ego. That's that great. Takes control. <laughs> Chuck, does not at all. <laughs> does Gilbert actually have a key or a lever? Because Wednesday has Question. a lever in my head, and I and for a long time I was trying to get Wednesday to give me control of the lever, and she's just like, "Fuck you!" Like, no, absolutely not. Um, I think he does, but it's I don't know what it is. Yeah. Um, the that show, uh, lock and key. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, that's a good uh, show. Yeah. Good. That really hit with some of this stuff with me. Mm -hmm. um, the mind key. 
Yeah. Where they go inside of his head. Yeah. 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 What yes. would it look like, Chuck, if Dilbert was made aware that he's always welcome? No. <laughs> Not an option. Yeah. That would look like a that would look like a lie, Steve. <laughs> yes, that's <laughs> yes. It's Which, that's the shitty part about having selves is you can't lie to them, especially Wednesday. Uh, He's like, yeah, who, you, fuck, who are you trying to lie to? Like I'm reading the same shit you're reading. Yeah. You're like, lying. You're my lying. eyes are your eyes. Like, like what the fuck? You can't you cannot lie to me. That doesn't work. <laughs> But it's, I mean, what Steve's, what Steve's asking there, at least what, what I hear is that he's asking about what would it actually look like to be fully reintegrated? Like if you actually yeah. got to a point where you respected every single part of yourself and that was a holistic experience dynamically yeah. amongst all your different pieces. And, and especially like if, if you're at a place where you can't even imagine what that would be like, like that, that's just, that's just exactly where you're at then. Like you can't imagine it yet. It doesn't mean it's not possible it just means you're not there. So then you're just exactly where you're at, which is at a place of, of some kind of balance between self-respect and self-hatred, which isn't the worst thing, but it's not the best thing. And it's just a place to be like anything else. The words but that come to my mind would be um, like the most scariest thing imaginable. Cause it's like you said, when you <laughs> are reintegrated, mm -hmm you're at your most vulnerable state. Yes. And I have lived for, so I'm 36 years old and I've been vulnerable with people and I get hurt mm -hmm. all the fucking oh, time. Yeah. And I get some of it is unintentional, uh, but most of it has always been intentional. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, yeah, the most scariest thing you could possibly imagine. It is, it's terrifying. To end to do it on purpose. That's the worst part. Well, yeah. Yeah. Because well, it's, oh, go ahead, Steve. Yeah, I'm sorry. Well, Chuck and I talked, I was over at Chuck's today for a little bit. And that's one of the things we talked about is we don't, people don't like to sit in people's vulnerability. Mm -mm. They don't like to sit when somebody's hurting. <laughs> if they see somebody hurting, our instinct is to fix it, you know, to, or to offer advice. Well, you, and you get the Christian's perspective as well. You know, God does, loves you too much to leave you that way. Well, yeah, but what does that mean? And, and, and to just you're a bad sit, person because bad things are happening to you. Yeah. <laughs> well, just to sit and listen to it. You know, just to sit. And that's one of the things I'm really working on is just to sit with somebody in their pain. I had a customer who just out of the off the cuff two weeks ago told me her husband tried to commit suicide. I could tell that really disturbed you because you said that in the last podcast. I could yes, tell that it's like it it, it it hits you in your soul. You yes. felt it there. Yes, I did. And you, you did not know what to say or what to do. And nope. it like it really unsettled you, which is completely reasonable and honestly very compassionate. Yeah. Well, what I what I'm working on is just to, to listen to it, mm -hmm. you know, not tell her you'll get through this, not to tell her, mm -hmm. well, that's the lazy way out. That's a temporary solution to a or a permanent solution to a temporary problem, all the all the cliches, but just to sit and let someone verbalize it. Because what I'm learning is even as I journal and write stories down, the healing starts because you're getting it mm -hmm. out. Well, it's, and it doesn't, 
it comes right. out in my experience, what it actually feels like physically, like what you're describing there, like the actual physical sensation of sitting with that level of emotion is it actually feels like burning. It yeah. feels like yeah. some level of intense burning in your nervous system. And it's the hardest thing to just let it burn through because the instinct is to put the fire out. You're like, nope, I am not going to do this and I'm not going to sit through this. But fire is always a cleansing thing. It comes through and it just gets rid of all the shit. So as much as it, it leaves devastation in its wake, it's supposed to because in the midst of devastation is always a brand new canvas. And it's so hard to trust that death is going to do its magical work. And on the other side is something not just brand new, but possibly even better. And it's, it's just hard to sit with. Like nobody wants to do that. Everybody wants to sit yeah. with what they know. It's yeah. the concept of dying to live, right? Yeah. If you're, you're going to live, you have to die. Wasn't well, that the metaphor of Christianity, death and resurrection? It's uh, yeah, exactly. It's a, again. But, but nobody wants yeah. to do it. We want to yeah. dress it up and make it look like it. That's not what it is. And that's what it seems like to me anyway, being vulnerable. One, one of I think, the, I went back into Christianity and, and I was vulnerable just to piss people off or to see, <laughs> or to see if they would be vulnerable. Me. Yeah. Cause I kind of wanted <laughs> people to reject me. I, I no, want I people to reject me. I wanted what the, the fuck? No, you made that that's up. how I met Derek is like, I was completely vulnerable and a complete <laughs> asshole scaring the crap okay. out of, you know, well, right. he would have loved that. I well, would have well, loved it. I would have been like more please. Because I was used no, to recovery that's, that's groups, totally I went to recovery groups, and I thought that can, this, that's what Christianity should be, right? I've heard it's supposed to be like a hospital. What antagonistic? Meh, it's true. Jesus was very antagonistic. You can absolutely manipulate people with your vulnerability. Oh, absolutely so true. <laughs> and it yeah, like there's right. a certain sense of power that happens when you successfully do. Uh, um, yeah. And uh, and yeah, and the, the, like. And Christianity is so easy and right for that because they're obligated. They know that they're supposed to sit there and just be a good Christian, but they have no context <laughs> on how to do that well. No. So if you actually have, like, if you're fairly self-secure and you just blow open that vulnerability for someone, like, like, like it will just absolutely rip them to shreds because they have that sense of obligation and duty as a Christian but they suck at it so badly and everything, everything inside of them wants to run away. And yeah, there's a huge power rush from doing that. Like, that's really fun. Like, I mean, yeah. you did, I didn't lose anything, right? Like I volunteered my vulnerability. I'm not, <laughs> it's not even real vulnerability. If I no. and I was in control. That's what I was just thinking is that like, it's, it's simulated vulnerability. It's not yeah. actual vulnerability because it's, well, and that, I mean, I, 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 of course, I relate to it in the sense that I've always been able to just kind of create a hierarchy in my mind of my vulnerabilities. And then I pick the second vulnerability on the list. And then I take that one and toss it out there because I don't actually really care because yeah. it's not my number one vulnerability. So it doesn't actually really get me at my core. Like but testing the, the, the second kind one. Well, kind of. Well, because my second vulnerability freaks people out. <laughs> They're like, oh, that's a horrible thing. And I'm like, oh, yeah, but it's not my first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that goes back to my time in period groups, which is that, which was a lot of garbage. But there was one really good question they used to ask every week, which was, tell me the one thing that you don't want to tell me first. And they know what it is instantly. Like, you're thinking of something right now that you don't want to tell anyone. Look me in the eyes 
and tell me what it is. I'm having flashbacks, Derek. <laughs> like, this is not okay. Like, ah. Uh... Like, and, and it, like, I mean, that can be abusive, but if you're really in a safe setting and you really have established a relationship with a person, it's best on a one-on-one scenario. Like, yeah. like that really, like, cause they want to tell you that they do. And they also really don't want to tell you that. Um, but no, but, but uh, it's amazing how that works because most people immediately have something and it's amazing how they'll try they'll still hedge for half an hour trying to get around having to tell you and yet you can see that inside of them they desperately want to get that out like they what? really need to tell someone let's play Derek what's the one thing you don't want to say um oh Chuck you're a nasty motherfucker I like you <laughs> my, we're all thinking of it in our head my wife and I, I have really having a hard time sexually figuring some stuff out and I'm trying to figure out how much of this is stuff that I ought to um that really is genuinely issues that we need to work on and how much of it is my own ego that I probably just need to let go of and I'm still not sure where the balance is how's that that's pretty good <laughs> actually I'll I'll just ride your coattails and say that I'm kind of in a similar place right now. It's it's not exactly parallel to that, but it's similar. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, everything you just said there of finding that middle ground between where you're right and where you're wrong. I don't actually know. What about you, Steve? It'd be similar. And I like that. I don't really know. Hmm. That's what I think that's what I'm because I'm really into my stories. That's my my hit my life journey stories. Pulling memories out and just it's kind of like Derek's dead children, but it's actual memories that I have, just snippets, snapshots. Um, I was telling Chuck today that one I've worked on, I wrote about two pages today on was uh, when I was about six or seven years old, my dad my dad worked for Boeing and he had been gone for a few days and he couldn't have been gone long because mom didn't drive and she had four kids. I remember in the morning, dad must've come home after I'd gone to bed. Cause I remember in the morning playing with something he brought back on the, on the hallway outside the bathroom and dad was busy getting ready for work. Did not acknowledge me, did not say hi, did not say, I missed you. How was, how was your time? You know, are you enjoying that? I was invisible. And I'm wondering how much, um, of what I've been acted out, acting out my life is trying to gain attention. You know, trying to get um, somebody to notice me, because any notice is better than no notice. Yeah. Or any attention is better than no attention. So that's why I'm really that what is right and what is wrong. That, that really resonates because I just, you know, what is it what I want versus that wound, and that's that's one of the areas that I'm working on. Mm. That makes sense. Oh, yeah. 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 I think about the hierarchy of vulnerability that Kristen mentioned. That's uh, that I, I identify with that, what you just said. Like, I have a hard time with the different characters that I have within me, you know? But I understand that and the stories and the things that have shaped my life, you know, recently. Chuck's got to take off really soon. 
and uh, we're going to miss you, Chuck. Welcome back eventually. Wait, where are you going? <laughs> Wait, what's happening? I have to. I have to leave. I have to take my kids and drop them off with their mother. Okay, you made it sound she like goes, he was going to die, Russ. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> yes. I'm, and we don't know, Kristen. We don't know. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Chuck. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right, Chuck. We love you so much, buddy. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Love oh, you, man. Geez. Go in peace. Make sure you guys have a good funeral for me, okay? <laughs> okay. It'll be fun. Make sure there's a buffet. That's right. He's can we make, Can I make a funeral pyre for you? Yes. Okay. That's that'll be sweet. He's okay. told you about his Viking funeral, right? Well, I guess your your North Idaho Viking funeral. His plan. It's gonna be awesome because it's gonna smell uh, like so yeah. gross. Flesh smells like when it burns. <laughs> he wants to be burned like Darth Vader. That's fine. Yeah. Like way bigger than that, though. That was a piddly little fire. Like I, I want like like. Oh my god. Yeah, like like remember those Idaho. Uh, oh yeah, I remember the bonfires. The shipping yeah. bonfires where you'd pile all the yeah. shipping. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Jeff. and then you, you cable them all together and it'd be like 50 feet tall. Yes, yeah. I do remember. Yeah. And nobody was drunk. That's the whole thing. Because it wasn't just no. North Idaho bonfire. It was a North Idaho Quaker bonfire. That was always the best punchline oh. of all this stuff is you tell these people these crazy stories oh. and you'd be like, and nobody was on anything. We chose to do this. Everybody is straight sober. <laughs> Dead sober. Alcohol was <laughs> not involved. No, it, it nope. makes it weirder. Uh -huh. It actually it does. does. It makes it way weirder. <laughs> yep. Like, everybody was sober, really? Yep. Yep, they really were. We just chose to be stupid. It was so, It was fun. It was super fun. It was fun. <laughs> yep. There were some moments that were really good. I just remember running through like Dan Reimer's backyard, like playing paintball, mm -hmm. just like wanting to get shot. <laughs> his, his so I have a friend, and his dad owned what, like, 10 acres or something like that. And his yeah, dad was a vendor, like he did vending machines oh. for a living. And he, and so he literally took a huge chunk of his backyard and he got on the tractor and he made bunkers and like obstacle course out of vending machines. And it was then- awesome. It was oh, that's awesome. It was so we had, cool. It yeah, was the best paintball. It was like, pretty fantastic. Yeah, yeah, and it was great. Like paintball all day. Mm uh, which it turns out, it's another one of those things that not everybody got to have that experience as a child. Turns yeah. out that was fairly rare. <laughs> that was not something everybody did. But in the moment, I didn't appreciate it. Because like, well, sure, that's, that's where you and I got really lucky. Like as much as you and I got really, really fucked up in a lot of very bizarre ways, we actually had a, a ton of great experiences. Mm -hmm. And it's it's learning how to like feel both. Yeah, for sure. And it comes up, it's useful in everyday life all the it time, is. especially in my job of like, <laughs> like people have such like intense risk management stuff that they grew up in the city. Um, and I'm just like, well, why don't we just get out there and try it? And, and, and I'm happen to be very good at flying by the seat of my pants because I've been in so many genuine, da genuinely dangerous situations. Uh -huh. I had to just work out. Mr. Dry Ice Bombs and, yeah. uh, and ripping the tire off the truck and then just yeah. having to like figure out how to get a new tire without mom and dad right. knowing. Like, my engineering it's, all, it's, it's fun. A 16 year old engineer trying to figure out how the fuck I was going to keep my mom from finding out I'd ripped the tire off of my truck by taking it off running. 
So until you wrote an essay about it. Did. That's like the well, most fun thing to do is to like do some stupid shit and then get away with it and then tattle on yourself by writing it's, a goddamn except, essay. Except you know what, Kristen? <laughs> I didn't get in trouble at all. Ah, I got in trouble for everything. I got in trouble for everything. How did you rip the tire off, Derek? Uh, I hit a tree sliding sideways. Oh, nice. All right. (laughs) Hit the curb. There you go. Yeah. I, yeah. So, and it was great because my friend was out there and we, and the, it was the front uh, passenger side tire and the rim was on the ground. Um, And the ground was frozen. So, and so, and I didn't have a spare. Of course. So I jumped in my friend's rig and we drove to my house and picked up one of my snow tires and then drove back. And my friend had been trying to figure out, he was trying to figure out how to get, because it was the, the whole truck was tilted. So we couldn't get the jack underneath it. So he would, he was under there with his pocket knife because he was a, he was one of those. Yes. He was a fake. It was Tyler, wasn't it? There's something something Tyler would do. He was a fake badass. And he was like (laughs) chipping away at the ground. And I show up and I look at him and I go move and I went and started the truck and pulled it forward three feet. And then I lifted the whole tire up and he'd spent like the last like hour and a half trying to chip a hole in the ground. No wonder you wrote an essay. You were so proud of that. You had to tell somebody. Fucking idiot. (laughs) (laughs) And then I wrote an essay on it about it and left it on the printer and my mom read it. Yes. Like you did what to the truck. And then I was like, but compared to what Kristen does to trucks, it's nothing. Shut up. <laughs> did you wreck the truck? Yes, Kristen wrecked two trucks within six months. <laughs> oh no. He's not happy about it at all. I was I was actually thinking about it earlier today because I was I was thinking about the whole disassembled thing. And then what came to mind, oh, is this about to end, by the way? No, I'm pay for it. So you're gonna pay for it? I pay for zoom yeah with my five dollars a month that i contribute you better (laughs) yeah oh no but i was thinking about the whole idea of like being disassembled and so i've never told anybody this story before but so this was this was i've had i had a lot of really not great experiences when i first started driving like i was not a good driver i was terrified of driving fast i was terrified of getting it like into a in some kind of like uh, head-on collision. And so I think in the first year I hit a dog, a tree, two cars, ran three stop signs, and then I got my license suspended. And then I blew up one truck, and then I blew up another truck. Oh, <laughs> man. I did a lot of really, really stupid things. How did you blow but anyway, up the trucks? Wait. <laughs> so, so like by the time that I got to like no, it was because it, it was my second truck. And I remember like the, the engine light came on. And I was super freaked out because every time something went wrong with a vehicle, my parents just came down on me super hard oh, and no. they would strip away any kind of social interactions or anything that was fun in my life, which wasn't much, but they would just take it all away. Right. So the engine light came on, check engine light. And then my best friend at the time, I was just like, I was like, oh shit, what am I going to do? And so she's like, okay, we're going to go to my friend's house and we're going to pull into his garage and he's going to fix it for you. So we pull in, I never met this person before in my life, this guy. And he pulls out this wrench. He's probably a 16 year old kid. And he just starts pulling shit out of the engine. And he goes, optional, optional, oh, optional. Man. And he's just throwing it out of the engine. And I'm sitting there going, oh shit, this is not going to end well. <laughs> and then he grabs this big thing, this big thing of duct tape and he like, winds it something together and then he slams it super hard with a wrench and the check engine light turned off so then i drove it like that for another month until it blew up so 
that's how the second one happened, Derek. Just oh, no. I haven't that's heard that story. Nope. That's a good, that's a good analogy. I used to use the analogy with addicts. <laughs> like you can, it's sort of like there's a lot of people that will go up and just clip the check engine light, you know? Uh-huh. It's like, you know, you don't need to deal with that. That's a really <laughs> good analogy of pain why. inside you. Just it's a really good analogy of why you need a good therapist. Yeah. I, I actually use this analogy <laughs> because I also had a friend in high school, it's a different friend, who anytime a light would come on on the dashboard of their car, they just take a piece of duct tape and put it over the light. Oh, wow. <laughs> didn't have to ignore it so i was like whatever i use that, that analogy in therapy a lot because i'm like so anytime you have an emotion and you start feeling things you just take a piece of duct tape and you just stick it over it so then you do that for 40 50 years and then all of a sudden the whole thing explodes and you're like why why yeah. did it explode there were no <laughs> engines uh, there was no lights anywhere i, I haven't seen a light in 20 years because <laughs> the whole dashboard is covered yes it's like <laughs> there was this news report of this woman who was like punched in the face in downtown seattle by a homeless person and knocked the fuck out like there's surveillance video of it and they showed it and she Uh just boom and she takes it and she falls on the ground and so they interview her later and she goes and she was like russian and she goes well i'm stoic like i don't need therapy and i didn't need to go i didn't i'm not traumatized and stuff like that that And and i thought of that like she just I'm stoic like that's another way of explaining the cutting of the <laughs> but yeah the yes the table now that I'm strong and I'm capable and I am I am a mountain I don't need anything else but yeah that's I, why God vodka. does right what'd you say Dark? that's why God made vodka oh god to turn that's mountains and turn mountains into landslides it's like mm, that's what vodka does <laughs> it liquefies things it's great that things aren't quite so uh, rigid so true i uh yeah that's what i was i had a thing at work where i i almost broke down crying doing tires which is not something that i would normally have done and so i've done all this work like you guys were talking about where you know i've had to shed these parts of myself and i've had to become vulnerable and so now i'm in this environment where i've never done this kind of work before like i have but not consistently like every fucking day working on cars. And I did just, you know, tires are just rims that are hard. And it was just really hard to do. And I like I, fucking, I don't want anybody to see it, but I'm like off there just, you know, tears are like coming out of my eyes. And it's because, I don't know, there's like that analogy of the, of the cup. Like it's just, I'm feeling with emotion and I could feel it coming, you know? Like, oh, fuck, like, I got to do something. But it's almost like a different kind of weakness of vulnerability where the, the me before could easily just shove that shit somewhere else. Like there was that teenager part of me. And I struggle sometimes with the different, I only have two. Like I have a nine-year-old kid in me and I have a teenager that take care of things. And uh, the teenager part of me would just be like, no, I got this right and now i don't know if that's integration or what it is but i'm like breaking down in tears over a set of fucking tires you know like this is is great maybe i'm not cut out for this i start thinking i would say the opposite you're just having a moment you're just having a very human moment and you just keep moving yeah it's okay to cry when you're tired oh god damn yeah there we go (laughs) oh 
Well, you yeah. were sitting on that for about a minute. Uh, yeah, a little longer. <laughs> That's a, that was really gross. I was trying to wait until the moment where it wouldn't be truly offensive and wouldn't take the, the, the wind. Uh, poor Russ. Poor hey, Russ. Russ. You just Sorry. undermined him completely with your stupid. No, I didn't. Puns. No, it's, it's still it's important. I, I used to go to a group and every time you'd enter into the group, they'd ask you if you were hit. So it was hungry, tired, or isolated. And you'd have to sit there and think about that Question. for a moment uh -huh. before you started to share things like, how, are you hungry? Are you tired? Or are you isolated? Like I you like haven't that, seen though. other people for a while. Yeah, it's a really good little analogy, but there's something to that. You, oh, no, there's definitely something to that. You're not in a good state if you're uh -huh. in any of those three things, right? Your, your assumption, Kristen, is that Russ can be derailed. He can't. <laughs> <laughs> You just oh, keep on going. Is that a challenge? <laughs> <laughs> oh, he can be like, you can change the subject, but he's just going to roll over the Is topic. he going to come back? All yeah, right. Maybe. Well, <laughs> that I, sounds like fun, actually. I was trying. It's, to. Like, it's like a rubber band. Ding. For <laughs> <Ding>. us. <laughs> okay, Russ. No, Where I was trying to, to uh, avoid, maybe. I don't know. Like the worst thing that I shouldn't say and i think oh yeah yeah what's yours i think lately it's been like like i don't know who i am or what i'm doing you know i feel like sucks that does suck and people are reflecting back to me the things i'm good at and mm. And that's been something I've had to deal with and with my therapist, you know, <laughs> which I haven't seen in over a year. I sent her an email after I had an accident at work and almost like ran myself over with a transit van, um, went to the hospital and the whole works. It turns out I'm fine, but it was fucking scary. And I, I sent her an email. She's like, Hey, you know, this is a pretty big deal. You taking on this new job. If you want to come in and see me again, you know, I'd love to see you make an appointment. Uh, and I haven't made that appointment, but yeah, I don't know. How I'm, come? The, yeah, that's the question, right? Uh -huh. Because some part of me, maybe I'm, I'm at an integrated part where I'm just, I'm just writing this thing out life, whatever this fucking thing is. And maybe I'm getting a more existential. You do you do life on extra hard, don't you? You take Sometimes. it and then you ramp it up two or three levels. You go straight for the gravel, which is fine. That's a way to do it. It's just- Do you mean like gritty. doing things the hard way or- Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah. No, I'll cause be you just, that. no, where you just, you, you grit and bear it and you just get through it and you let it take off two, three layers of skin. And through the whole process, you lose a lot, but then you also gain a whole lot of, I mean, experiential points. I can understand. I don't want to learn. It gives you a that. sense of control. <laughs> it does. Because yeah. because if you expect the worst thing to happen anyways, you might as well choose it instead of instead of just let it surprise you, right? That's another analogy from work is is tools. Like there's tools for things 
that I didn't know fucking existed, you know? And there's like an oil change on a certain car where I would really do it the hard way. Like I would find the right wrench just out of my toolbox because I'm not going to buy another tool because that's a waste of money. So I'll, so I'll figure it out. Right. And then it ends up taking three times longer. And then people are come up to me and go, Russ, I got this. And then this is a little tool. And I'm like, Oh fuck. Like that just made the job way easier. And this keeps happening to me during this job. And I think there's some kind of <laughs> metaphor there that I'm trying to. That's, that's kind of what I mean is that, is that you're willing to put in the work and you're willing to put in the effort, but you might actually be able to cut that work and effort, not just in half, but like, cut it down significantly with some kind of a tool that you'd never heard of yet, but you're, you're open to learning, which I think that's, that's all anybody can ask as a human is just as long as we're open to learning and growing. Cause I think that we're all in that place that it doesn't, I, I think that we can, we can feel a little bit or a lot cocky and in our, our education or, or feeling as though like our life experience and just feeling as though that we know more than we do but I think we're all in the exact same position that you're in of we're probably doing some things harder than we should. Yeah. And, and are we open to figuring out what the uh, shortcut is, even if it requires some level of uh, honesty, being honest with ourselves and actually letting go of some kind of routine or habit that we've become accustomed to. Cause that's the hard part. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, as far as my path is concerned, I think it's a, that's how I think about it because I've studied some psychology too. So here's what's weird about me, Kristen, is I used to listen to psych lectures for fun. You know, I go on oh, I you and just I download <laughs> you know, uh, social psychology. And I've listened to, I've listened to intro psych at every prestigious university in the world where the professor is someone who wasn't boring, <laughs> like stuff like that. And so I know some of the language and I know some of what I'm going through and sometimes going back to that kind of existential and some of the stuff that Steve and I talked about last week is, is I'm choosing to be exactly who I mm -hmm. want to be, mm -hmm. whether I, I like it or not, you know, and sometimes I envy Derek and Chuck a little bit with the being able to characterize some of the feelings and emotions, because there's a part of me that like we're hiring a new guy today and the first thing that came to mind wasn't the fact that i'm overworked and i get two days off and they're not in a row like i get friday and tuesday off which fucking sucks and so now they're bringing a new guy in and you'd think the first thing would be oh sweet i'll be able to get two days off and we'll we'll have you know this burden lift us off us a little bit but it wasn't it's like oh they're replacing you <laughs> The guy that mm. with. like what the fuck where did that come from like i want a character or something to be able to identify that and go who the fuck was that that came out and made me believe that you know because yeah that comes up like i'm this old fucking 52 year old guy I can't move like some of the younger dudes can't and uh and and part of that is like fuck i don't care fire me or lay me off whatever Oh, but you do care. You care a lot, actually. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. yeah. See, that's where I don't know. I don't know myself because mm -hmm. I don't know, you know. It's easier to not care. Like Dark was saying before, if you just keep your expectations low to the ground and you do that consciously, then, then you can't ever be disappointed. But the problem is, is when you take that consciousness and you keep it super low, you're ignoring the rest of you, which is most likely that 
that your body, which usually, I mean, the, your body is what harbors obviously your nervous system and it's within your nervous system where all of your unprocessed emotion resides as electrical pulses. And it's just sitting there waiting and it's, it's anticipating some kind of like permission to be able to be released. But if you're just sitting in your cognitive mindset and you tell yourself that you don't give a shit, but your body really, really, really cares. Like at the moment that the ax comes down and you're fired, you're like, oh, or whatever happens, consciously you're trying to lean into that because it gives you a sense of control and you feel like you're gonna be okay if you're like, oh yeah, I was expecting this, but really your body is just like, no, this is not okay. Yeah. And it and it retaliates and it just it just feels everything. And and if you're disconnected from your body in that moment and you just lean into your consciousness, it's like it's like setting off a live grenade physically in your body, but you're not actually there to witness it. And so your body takes the the hit, but your consciousness gets to ex- escape. And it's it's very effective, but it's also very fucked up. Yeah, yeah. That's Bessel Vanderkolk's whole premise, Russ. Yeah. You know, were you ever told that you were nothing? That you'd never amount to anything? Yeah, not not directly, but I mean... Indirectly. Of course, there's the bullies, you know. My yeah. dad, you know, my dad always pointed out like shitty things about me and things yeah. that, you know, I need to improve on. And, and then hearing the story from his dad about what an asshole he was when my dad finally kind of shared that part of his story with me my dad uh had a tragic accident and and went around a school bus in his car and hit and killed a little girl and his dad at the time was dying of cancer and uh just shit on him my dad shit on my dad until until the day he died like he never said you know it was an accident buddy I'm sorry. It was okay. It was like, no, you embarrassed our family. You punished him. He punished him until. Yeah. yeah. And my dad didn't really deal with that. Cause you know, just like just a generation or whatever. But I think I, I caught a lot of that, you know, Yep. I same, same shit that he got from his dad. So um, I just wanted to distance when my mom and dad got divorced. I just distanced myself from my dad. And then he married an abusive fucking stepmother, which she was just, and she was just like him, you know, she would just tell me all the horrible things that, you know, how I was a disappointment and stuff. And, and I just didn't want to see him anymore, you know, and I, he had visitation and custody rights and all that shit. And I'm like, I'd make up something I'm sick or whatever, or I'd run away. You know, and eventually my mom was like, what the fuck are you doing to my son when he's when he's at your place? Because he doesn't want to go like you think I want to see my dad. Um, so, yeah, that was something I had to deal with, too. I mean, there's just a just a shit ton of trauma that. I want to heal from it. But so, at some point, like there's two parts of me. Oh, fuck. Oh, here's here's something that. I want, I want to be able to love better, you know. And I, I can lock myself in a box. And I'm really good at that, you know. And I don't know if mom can function. Being able to love better, and I'm doing the best I can, but it's just been really fucking hard. I think that's, that's probably where you kind of sense that 
you don't really have the whole formula that you're loving as well as you know how and as best as you can, but you're doing it based on some kind of illusion of what you believe love to be versus what it actually is. And that, that I think is a really, really hard reality check because when we, we, when we invest so much into what we believe we're supposed to be doing in order to be able to love, like, it's just, we don't want to lose that investment. But if come to find that you were enough all along and you didn't have to try so hard, it's, it's almost more frustrating because then it feels like, well, what was all that time and energy? What was all that about? And that was just about all your pain and all your trauma, because if there's anything that this year has taught me, it's that every single one of us is enough all the time. Mm -hmm. There's never a moment that that's not true. And that we are actually, every single one of us is always doing our best. And that's not to excuse growth. There's always room for growth, but wherever we are within our our experience and journey and pathway is exactly where we're supposed to be because the next moment in time isn't gonna come unless you have this one. And so it's, I mean, I can tell that there's something in you, Russ, that is looking for affirmation, but also just to be seen and to just be told that you're good. You've always been good. You've always been enough. Like when your stepmom tells you you're disappointed and that becomes a permanent part of your identity, that's still where you're living from. Yeah. You still believe that to be true. And well, that's a curse. I guess I've, I've shed parts of that. It wasn't a lot of my addiction, you know, and my, my years of being an addict was just, you know, and some of it was the church, you know, that language from the church that I'm a mm-hmm. sinner and, you know, and, and I get that too. Like there's some, something healthy to it, but when you tire, the sexual abuse was devastating, you know, just the way that this guy used the same language to, um, you know, no one's going to love you if they find out. Mm-hmm. Like you, you got to keep this under wraps because, and it just matched up with everything else. Right. That's why they prey on the vulnerable kids. Um, But that tape playing in my head for so many years, you know, it becomes your default reality. And regardless of what you tell yourself consciously and what you know to be true consciously, your body believes something different. And Mm. that's, I mean, that's, I mean, so, I mean, when I was talking about earlier about the, uh, that I specialize in extreme trauma, I do a ton of body work and, and that's something that I'm still learning how to do myself. Like I'm not perfect at it because I'm still working on reintegrating myself. Like I'm not fully in my body, <coughs> but I'm enough in it that I have almost like a roadmap that I can give to other people and then trying to be able to translate what it's like to transition from your conscious mind into your physical body and then to release whatever is is just stored up in there it's it's really really tricky because you're shifting perspectives of your reality and you're doing it over and over and over again Mm. i mean like like uh chuck was talking about previously just about the camera angles 
you know, we, we experience things as humans consciously from multiple perspectives and many angles simultaneously all the time. It's, it's like you have a thousand different cameras in your head going on at all different times. You just get to pick the camera angle that you view it from and how you choose to process it. But because the human brain is so intelligent, you can go back and reroute and you can experience the exact same memory from a different point of view mm. if you know how to be able to access it correctly. Mm. And the more you reprocess a former memory from a different point of view, the more information you're going to have, the more you're going to heal. Yeah. But if you keep coming back to the same memory, the same perspective over and over and over, and you keep hitting that over and over and over again, it's not, it's just going to wear thin, like a hinge on a door, like eventually it's just going to rip loose. And so it's trying to shift, but it hurts because it feels like gears grinding and you feel mm -hmm. that and there's resistance there because you don't want to do it. And it's just healing is such a painful experience. It's awful. The yeah. brain knows how to do it. It will do it automatically, but the human consciousness knows how to shut it down. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's something that I think that I find fascinating just in mammals in general is that humans are pretty much the only mammals that can consistently shut down a healing trauma response because all other animals, all other mammals, when they're traumatized psychologically or emotionally, they'll shake it out. They'll do it automatically. They'll go in almost a comatose state they're still conscious, but it's like they're, they're it's, it's almost like a sleep paralysis thing. And they'll just flop over and they'll start vibrating super, super heavily until all of that nervous energy that's stuck in the nervous system shakes its way out. But humans stop it because we go, nope, I'm not going to be that vulnerable. I'm not going to do it. And then we just hold it. Right. It's, it's like a bomb that we hold in our gut because it originates like the, the feelings Emotional feelings originate. The source of it is in, it's anchored in your intestines. That's where mm. the root of the nerve starts. And so if you can actually start reconnecting with your body and feeling wherever the emotion is lodged and where it's not being released, it will change that camera angle. Yeah. But it's During the abuse, I, I had huge stomach aches like all the time. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure you and were holding... Miss I'm sure school. you were holding the scream in your gut, like yeah. the whole sense of like, absolutely not. Like, this is not going to happen to me. I will not be violated like this, mm. but you have to hold that somewhere because you know that you're not safe enough to say it out loud. Yeah. So it has to go somewhere else in your body. And I've done a lot of work on that and I've the EMDR and we, you know, breakthroughs and in, in, in that and being able to be at that different camera angle and see it from a different place. But you know, I, I guess I, I still have more healing to do, you know? I think we I, all do. I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> like I just you. No, I, I actually resent it quite a bit. Fucking therapy. I'm fucking sick of it, you know? Isn't it awful? <laughs> One of the things that I tell people when they first come to my office, especially if it's a teenager, if a teenager comes to my office, the first thing I usually look at them, because there's usually just like so much resentment on their face. And I look at them right. and I'm like... Like, I know you don't want to be here and I know your parents made you come. And I was like, and I'm not going to make you stay. And therapy is the worst fucking thing ever. But I was like, if you see it like this, it's like going to the doctor, you go to the doctor to get some information so you can do some shit, so you can heal, so you can live your life. So if you want to use this productively, I'm on board, but I get why you hate this. Cause like, I mean, Derek, like our parents made us go to therapy when we were kids. 
I hated it. My parents made me go to therapy. I think they started making me go, I think when I was 12 and I didn't voluntarily go until I was 16. There were four years. It was awful. We had 90s Idaho therapy. 90s Idaho therapy. Very good. So, I mean, Kristen may have had decent therapists. My therapist was terrible. I had 10 different therapists until I found one that I liked. Yes. And then I I was willing to go. (laughs) I had a lot of different therapists and they were mostly garbage. Terrible. Terrible, yes. terrible, terrible. I saw therapists as a kid too. After my parents got divorced, and you know, just some of the stuff, skipping school, and some of the obvious shit that I was going through, I never said a word to the therapist. But my favorite therapist <laughs> took me out, and we fed the ducks. Oh, I actually <laughs> love that. No, I do. Like, that's hey, let's get out of this great. office. I got some bread. Let's go feed the ducks. I'm like, sweet. Like, uh-huh. you know, yep, that's a good move. He's the no, he's it really guy is. I like. Yeah. Well, because it's you just want to have a moment to just be be human, like where you don't feel forced to have yeah. to talk about anything specific or be serious. Like it's just your soul and their soul, and you just get to have this moment of connectivity, and you can do something really simple and innocent, and nobody's getting hurt, and you're just feeding the ducks. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, the fact that you remember that, yeah. in my mind, that's that's high quality therapy because that's somebody getting to know you and recognizing that you don't want to talk about it. You yeah. don't want to like get into that. Like that was not the time you weren't ready. And so yeah. instead they just spent time with you. I remember one, one therapist was trying to like, she knew something was going on with, with the sexual abuse. And I, again, I didn't tell anybody until I was like 38 mm-hmm. and she, she just, just, you know, somebody touched you down there, didn't they? And like, just like, it was a fucking principle. And I was, you know, in trouble. I just started crying. And I was like, mom, I never want to see that person again. You know? Yep. That sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't know who would want to, because yeah. it's like you said, it's almost accusatory. It's almost as though like they're proud of the fact that they've picked up on all the 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 very subtle cues and been able to put it together and they figured out this puzzle and then they're just like they're just so impressed with themselves especially professionally and they're going to present it to you like it like it's a like it's a formal presentation just like oh this is my powerpoint presentation of like how you were sexually molested and you have to acknowledge it and no you don't it felt like an interrogation by the cops is what well it kind of was yeah i mean it kind of was because it wasn't actually about you it was about somebody else and them being right. And that's not therapeutic. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not, no, no. it's just re-traumatizing and re-triggering and causes you to have more issues with perceived authority and you just never trust anybody ever. Yeah. And it's, it's therapy to me feels pretty damn simple. It's just a matter of, can I be myself and can you be yourself? And can we have that sense of presence and can we connect in that? And in the midst of it, do you want to bring up something serious? Because people don't always do that. It's a lot of times trust, they just want to sit right? and bullshit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The best trust. thing about my therapist that I've had so much success with is that 85% of the time is spent in silence while I work on my own stuff. And not only like, and mostly that's impressive because it means it's not about her ego. Mm-hmm. Because that's what therapists want to do is they mm-hmm. want to be the right person in the room that has all the answers. Like I am the medicine. And I was like, now that you are the medicine is the right answer. 
but so many therapists are fixated on I am the medicine and they don't do shit. They just take money. Mm-hmm. And inflate their own egos. Yep. And I'm not, I mean, I, I, I can't pretend like I've never done that because of course I have, and I'll do it again. Like I will, like you can't ever completely disassemble your ego from an interaction, but as long as you always have some flag for it, you can kind of sort of keep it in check. And at least you can have a conversation about it because it needs to be about the other person. Otherwise it's, it's a waste of time. Yeah. I like what you said about knowing the path because you've walked the path kind of right like that part of your body where oh you mean just from like yeah where you're able to get in touch with those parts of yourself and and breathe or the things that you tell other people it's not just because you've learned it it's because you lived it and applied it to your own life i think what feels the weirdest is that i'm not done yeah. is that i am living it and i am I'm still going down that pathway and I don't, I don't have any sense of complete answers. And I think there's, there's, there's something about being a therapist. Cause I've been doing this now for about 10 years and I'm, I'm respected relatively enough within my community where I work and it comes with a certain amount of prestige and expectation, almost like you're a guru. And it's mm-hmm. awful because when are you ever allowed to be vulnerable? It's just, mm-hmm it doesn't really happen. And so then I start craving that. And what Derek was talking about at the very beginning of, of us like coming together and talking at the beginning of the, uh, the, the episode here was just that, uh, like, when can we really be fully transparent and honest that we don't know what the fuck we're doing? I don't always know what I'm doing and I make mistakes. I do, I make mistakes as a therapist a fair amount. Like 95% of the time I have a good handle on what I'm doing, but that doesn't mean that I'm doing it well all the time. And I'm struggling myself, especially this year. It's just been very, very, very lonely. Mm. And it's, and nobody has the answers. Nobody knows what the fuck we're doing. Like, I mean, when it comes right down to it, we don't even know, we don't even know why we're here. We just know that we are and that it's hard. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's the, the anchors. Well, my constant a, existential crisis. Well, that's a great place to land the plane, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Kristen. And you're welcome anytime, man. We can... Am I really? Yeah. Because if I'm really, I'll just I'll just insert myself. There you, you go. We'll so, send you to yeah, it's fine invite, man. Be, yeah, fine. you're actually okay with it, Steve? Yeah, absolutely. You mean I that? Enjoy. Okay. All right. Good. Well. Nobody asked me. I'm going to ask you, Derek. <laughs> you don't get a vote. Fuck you. <laughs> it's fine. I'm just you here. tortured me as a child, so I get a trump card. Yeah, she was talking about you, Derek. Stories yeah. that we didn't ever hear. I mean, why would I share that? <laughs> about how you tormented. Good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, my, uh, yeah. my sisters, I wouldn't want them on here. <laughs> no, Derek's very gracious. He is. He's a... Uh, well, and I mean, what I, what I was telling him, Derek, is that, yes, I, I, I was terrified of you and I didn't really have any kind of sense of respect for who you were until I was about 26 years old. But once that happened, all of a sudden there was just this deep sense of softening and then a profound sense of respect followed afterwards. Good. So. I was kind of a dick for a long time. So, mm-hmm. yeah. 
but Amen. you know, it came by, you came by it honestly. So I'll yeah. say that, but. but at least now I'm perfect. So shut up. <laughs> That's gross. <laughs> There you go. Ew. You gonna go tell Misha now? You're right. Right. <laughs> uh, okay, anyway, land the plane, Russ. We'll Forget. name this episode Humility. Is what we'll yeah. name. <laughs> <laughs> go. Thanks again, you guys. Thanks, Kristen. Thanks, Kristen. Yep. I think the worst time to have a heart attack is during a game of charades. That's huge. Thanks for listening to Punk Theology. Don't forget to subscribe like to join us in having more ears hear this punk sound please leave a review on itunes stitcher tune in radio or wherever you may hear this fucking podcast punk theology is the property of digital audio project a limited liability corporation who is responsible for its content don't chicken